This is Game Theory, a podcast about competition, strategy, and decision-making, hosted by me, Nick Andrews, and my brother, Chris. In this episode, what if Russia and the U.S. were the prisoners? If you're listening to this show, you're probably familiar with the prisoner's dilemma, the pillar of game theory that indicates how important it is to cooperate. But what if the accused criminals in the metaphor were organizations? What if they were countries? Do the rules change? Does the math change? Sure does. And with the Ukraine war passing its one-year anniversary, the dilemma is becoming more and more important. This is called the security dilemma. It's when actions taken by a state or organization cause reactions from other states or groups. It's how those reactions shape future relationships. It explains things like allyship, treaties, and organizational warfare. And right now, we're seeing it play out in front of our eyes. Episode 62 of Game Theory, podcast about competition, strategy, and decision-making, hosted by me and Chris. You can watch the show on YouTube.com or whatever app store you uh, watch or listen to, and I'm going to start the episode by falling on my sword. The beard is gone, the, the mustache, uh, and I'm old enough to, not, to call it not a mustache, it's a mustache. Uh, it's here. And it's, and it's fashionable not to be a mustache. Look, I, I've said, I think I've said this on the show many times. In between my bouts of bullying every once in a while, I regret to inform the listening public that the look works. And I hate to say that this is another case. The mustache is uh, it's working. Well, I really, I had a lot of flow in college, and I started to lose my hair a little bit in college, and it's still an ongoing no. battle. <laughs> ongoing battle. But I missed the man bun trend, and I never I never forgave myself for being a, a <laughs> greasy man bun guy. But I, I feel like I almost missed the mustache period, but now facial hair is just in vogue in general, the clean shave. Clean shaven is now a choice. Uh, it's like yes. a fashion choice. It's not a part of a uniform, so people are just doing stuff. This is not intentional. I uh, had some some blemishes on my face, and I picked some hairs out. And like, I feel gross. I'm shaving it. And then as I was shaving it, I was like, huh, fuck it. Not you bad. know what? It was the right look. It was the right look. You know, I, I think you stumbled into yeah. making a very, very good business decision because certain occupants of my household have opined occasionally opined. in the past, and I think the opinions have changed. The tide has turned. And I, 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 I do think you're right. Clean shaven is out. This isn't like uh, Charlton Heston and yeah. Planet of the Earth. Only kids of your age wear beards. Like, well, Charlton, it's ain't your grandpappy's Planet of the Apes. Yes. Uh, today we're talking about the prisoner's dilemma, the security dilemma, and how perhaps I mean, the prisoner's dilemma is such an interesting thing. But as we pointed out over and over and over and over again, there is a human element. Taking the human element out and creating parties and countries, there are some new branches that need to be discussed. So that's what we're talking about today. I Just to circle back to the facial hair thing, I wonder if mutton chops wouldn't work for you. You have such thick hair on your cheeks. I wonder if mutton chops aren't the vibe. I was, I was genuinely considering that. So my fiance was playing Red Dead Redemption 2 recently. Oh, dude, and, that uh, game is on another planet. Dude, another planet. It's crazy. Like you can go from the bog swamps of Louisiana to the limestone cliffs of Billings to mm-hmm. the Tetons. Dude, unbelievable show. I, think, unbelievable yeah, I actually think that it's game. underrated because there have been other games that are like really popular. It is somehow underrated. Yes. Yeah, uh, absolutely. It, it gets lost in the wash of like you know, like the the Star Wars 
battlefronts and the right. God of Wars and all that, and like all the you know huge online multiplayer games like exactly. Minecraft and stuff. Red Dead Redemption Two. I, I wonder if it's because it's not for kids. Like that's decidedly not a kids game. Yeah, for sure. I, it reminds me a lot of, and this is a video game conversation. You'll get over it. Um, it reminds me a lot of like when okay. Grand Theft Auto was in its heyday, where there was yes. a lot of game to be played. But also, my favorite parts of Grand Theft Auto is the same thing as like I enjoyed Red Dead Redemption, which I'm not a gamer. I own like four. Two are sports. One is Halo. One is Red Dead Redemption. I'm gonna do the Harry Potter thing that everyone's jumping on. It just seems too much fun. Um, but it does seem like a lot of I've, yes. I've heard questionable reviews about the quality of the game. Yeah, so that's so, so that's what I'm getting I know, at. We'll like, see. I don't want. I like an RPG in a world that is fanciful and fun. So the role playing game, of course, Grand Theft Auto, Red Dead Redemption, Harry Potter seem to me where I, I can just kind of be in another world, but a world that I like and that it's yep. aesthetically pleasing. Like GTA, you were a gangster and you were c- completing gangster tasks, and it was like illegal. And same thing with Red Dead Redemption, a lot of violence and re- revenge a lot and of shit. Violence. But doesn't have to be if you just want to dick around in the mississippi river you can do that and that's what i like about it you can just like check out and you don't have to do anything yeah it's it's so great and, and uh, another great one i think the perfect open world game uh breath of the wild yeah the people talk about that sell the title yeah. the the new the sequel is coming out it's you know the same animation style probably like a similar game format except for it looks like they're exploring a bunch of like floating sky installations and new weapons and new enemies and all kinds of good stuff. So if you want to get lost in those open world games, highly recommend. But uh, we were playing Red Dead Redemption 2, and the mutton chops are an option. You can select your guy's Mm -hmm. facial hair. And so briefly consider that. It's not off the table yet. I don't, yeah, I think that uh, very few people could pull it off. I think being from Wyoming in Washington, D.C. might be a good move for you. A couple quick announcements. Um, Every year I have vowed to change the logo of the show just... at a certain point, yes. if you get big enough, you don't do that because of branding and people get upset. We're not big enough we'll for that, big so enough. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to change it every year. We're going to keep the font, of course. I like it for now, um, but we're going to change the logo, so look for that. We didn't change, we, nothing else has changed. And everybody stuck with us with the new logo last year, Yeah. so it's coming up Seems on our like two-year it. anniversary. So new, new logo time, that's happening. Okay, before we get into the episode, I, I've been thinking about blogging on the site because I actually had, the last time I blogged was over a year ago. When a while ago, yeah. When the Raiders and the Chargers had, were in a real-life prisoner's dilemma standoff in an NFL game with a lot on the line. That was a lot of fun. That blog was really well-received. I've got another one. So I listened to this uh, football podcast. And stay with me, folks who don't like football. It's not really about football. They play yeah, at, the end of every, every, at the end of every episode when they talk about... So the first half of the year, it's about fantasy football. Second half of the year, it's about the NFL draft. At the end of every NFL draft episode, they play a game called Two Jargons in a Lie, which is a play on the game two truths and a lie. But the idea is they will have NFL draft experts come in and they will give them two NFL draft jargons, like real shit that scouts actually say that sounds stupid, like uh, blue chip and uh, water hips and just dumb shit. And then they'll also make up a phrase and the game is to guess which is the two actual jargons (laughs) and the lie. But it was so popular that they were demanded, everyone demanded to play this the whole time. They ran out of fantasy football or football jargons. And so now they open it up to the audience, and they're doing Amazing. like two two towns in Canada and a lie, and two banned <laughs> substances and a lie, two Oscar award winning movies and a lie. And the movie, like say if there was two That's Oscar amazing. award winning movies and a lie, the movie would be made up. It's not like a movie that didn't win the Oscar. It's like a fake movie, right? Like uh, right. Uh, like House on Notting Hill. Correct. Is that a real thing? But it sounds real. Right. Exactly. Like the one he went with was. Uh, he, he, the dude had a whole backstory and everything. So the, the, 
the listeners who are experts in things will write in the two surgical tools at a lie. The, I'll give you an example of. <laughs> I've been thinking about this as a game theory concept about how these listeners dick with these hosts. So what they'll Amazing. do is the game within the game is they'll pick something ridiculous and then they'll pick another thing ridiculous and then they'll make something up and you're like, is the ridiculous thing made up or not? And you can get tie yourselves in knots over this. Amazing. Right. So I'll give you the two, two towns in Canada and a lie. 100 mile house. Uh-oh. Medicine hat. Well, I know medicine hat's real. Like I've seen it on a map. Okay. Uh, I'm, I'm certain that 100 mile house is made up. No. Is it? No. Oh. See, that's the thing, though. And, like, if you have a relationship with your listeners, like, they will start screwing with them about, well, what do they think is going to happen? Like, it's been great. So I might have had to blog about that and explain to the people that this is an ongoing trend in this podcast because it's, it is – and the, they just recently brought someone else to play the game with them. It's like, no, this is not a game about how much we know. It's a game about how much our listeners respect us. <laughs> and it's, it is. Like, what's the most you know, ridiculous-sounding thing? Power is to that the true? people. It's, it's brilliant. So I might, I might have to write a blog about that. But, okay, speaking that's of blogging, funny. this dude – on Twitter, instead of writing a blog, he uh, chased the clout and wrote a blog, but did it in 37 tweets or something. And that has spawned a conversation in this episode, specifically because as we look around, balloons are falling from the sky. China and Iran and the United States and Germany and Ukraine and Russia, we are in a, a period of standoffs right now with one yes. active war zone in Europe. So we are going to get into the prisoner's dilemma as far as international conflict goes. So let's start with the tweet thread, this guy. Yeah, I want to give a big shout-out to uh, Paul Post. Uh, I need to uh, double-check uh, his credentials. Handles is at Prof Paul Post. Mm -hmm. uh, according to his bio, he is uh, at the University of Chicago. So for those of you who are not national security aficionados, uh, the University of Chicago for a long time was synonymous with uh, the basic international relations theory of realism. I don't know if it still is. I'm not like up to date on that. But uh, there was a guy named John Mearsheimer who has made uh, really unfortunate headlines over the last couple of years, basically blaming the West for Russia invading Ukraine. He's saying it's the West's oh. fault because they expand. So Sick. I don't want to uh, I, I, I don't want to cast aspersions, but I can't say I agree with any of that. But the University of Chicago is a, like a keystone in the broader architecture of national security thought in the U.S. And, and Paul Post is a professor there. Uh, this tweet from March 4th, uh, the, the top line of this many, many, many tweet thread says, the prisoner's dilemma shows that cooperation in international politics and other areas is hard, but it's not right, nor is it useful. So, I, I think, Nick, I've, I think I've said on the show before, there's this old engineering maxim that all models are wrong. Like, every, every model you make to describe a system is wrong, but some of them are useful. So, Professor Post is saying that, the prisoner's dilemma is not the right way to correctly understand international politics, despite what we talked about in our nuclear deterrence episode, which I assume we're going to link in the show notes. Yes. So uh, that was one of our more popular episodes ever, of course. And that was it was part of that was the proximity paradox, which is or the proximity paradox was about businesses. This is about yes. uh, how close you can be to have a to have a violent conflict. And that will be, of course, in the show notes. We did that. Just like everybody else, Ukraine was invaded by Russia to a lot of fanfare. All of the military experts that I followed on TikTok and Twitter at the time were like, this is going to be an actual war. It's going to be dragged out like people very similar to the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, the euphoria of this is going to wane, at which point Russia and Ukraine will just literally be at war. And the subsequent fallout for the last 12 months has been who else is going to do what? Winter is coming, which is 
from Game of Thrones, but also for Germany, who uh, is, yeah. is in a bit of an energy situation. There are balloons over the United States. China is ratcheting up tensions with Taiwan, which means it feels like we're in a situation now where more than Russia and Ukraine are going to be incentivized, nay, required, nay, bullied into participating in this, which is where we are right now with this, this, this prisoner's dilemma. Yeah, that, that, that's exactly right. The, so the term that you're using there, the term we've already mentioned, is security dilemma. Like, that's a formalized thing. It's not like a general description. Uh, and it's, it's a concept in international relations theory that describes exactly what you just said. Parties in tension. Nobody wants to be at war. Nobody right. decides war is, like, the best thing for us. Like, man, what, what do we got to do to get to war? Rather, what happens is countries who are competing with one another in a kind of prisoner's dilemma style setup where you can cooperate and cooperate or defect and defect or some combination of the two. When countries are in that dynamic, the, the dilemma arises because neither of them wants to go to war, but often their best incentive as a result of calculating out that game is to actually begin armed conflict. So the dilemma between those two things, I, I think it was first used or, or first used prominently uh, by this guy named Glenn Snyder in uh, 1971. He, he published this thing in uh, International Studies Quarterly, where he said, in the international relations literature, the theory most closely resembling the prisoner's dilemma is that of the security dilemma. He describes it as having a venerable history with like all these social contract theorists like Thomas Hobbes, like, and, and then through a bunch of more uh, modern national security thinkers. Uh, and the dilemma is said to arise inevitably out of the fundamental structure of the international system, the state of nature. That's not really government. Like, people think the United Nations is like the world government. Like, it's not. It's countries who act in their own best interests. They can choose to either agree and do international cooperation or they can choose to do international competition, wherein you start to get military buildup, and you start to get standoffs, and you start to get nuclear deterrence. Yeah. And so the, the common thinking is that the prisoner's dilemma describes the security dilemma on a smaller scale. Yeah, and like we've mentioned with the prisoner's dilemma, the, the problem with the prisoner's dilemma is that it puts someone with a what, what feels like at least five or six options into a box to have one, two, or three options. And it's a great theoretical concept. I have actually opined since starting this show, which is a great use of the word opined by me. Thank you. Bravo. <laughs> I have often opined, thought, pondered upon the terribleness of just ruined it with terribleness. The terribleness <laughs> of the zero sum game of the prisoner's dilemma. There has to be a better metaphor. There has to be because they could do any number of things. The problem with the prisoner's dilemma is like, what if there's a gang boss that's like, if you snitch, I'll kill you. If you don't snitch, I'll kill you, which is sort of yep. where we expand into the security dilemma. Like well, there's so much more at stake than life in prison here. There's like um, essentially everything at stake. The, the existence of multi-celled life on Earth now is, is at stake. Yeah, and that's, that's, not, that's really not an exaggeration, especially when you have two like, huge nuclear superpowers playing this kind of game. Uh, so you're right, there are, a lot of, there are a lot of problems with applying the prisoner's dilemma directly to the security relationship among states in, in this kind of like archaic or uh, 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 anarchical international environment. And one of those drawbacks is that the prisoner's dilemma sets up a scenario wherein two individuals are making decisions essentially simultaneously, yeah. which is to say neither one knows what the other is going to do. And whether they are asked or aren't asked exactly at the same time by two different guards, that's irrelevant. What matters is that their decisions are calculated simultaneously. And so we can end up in four different states. But that doesn't account for the order of operations that naturally happens in the international security environment. Everything is temporarily bound. And I think, Nick, that probably the closest thing I can come up with as a parallel to that is when we talked about the Monty Hall problem. 
So right. you remember the Monty Hall problem, yeah. the deal was like you can't just skip ahead to the end state and say, like, well, it's 50-50 the whole time because the order in which you make decisions, it actually changes the tree and it actually changes the end states that you arrive at. You can't just skip to the end. And so when considering the prisoner's dilemma, it's not really an accurate reflection of how countries in the international sphere interact with one another because it's part player A makes a move, player B makes a move in response. It's not they make two moves at the same time and like, well, we've come up with the outcome. And this is also different from what we talked about with the prisoner's dilemma where we said you actually you change the incentive if you don't know when the game is going to end. If you yeah. know the game is going to continue indefinitely, like we don't know when the economy is over. So it's in everybody's best interest to, to trade and cooperate. We don't know when the end result is going to be, and that changes the calculus. This is different from that even. This is instead not just a recurring reiteration of the game. It's a different structure to like the decision-making tree. And so rather than having this like two-by-two two kind of mathematical square, what ends up happening is a, a multi-pronged decision tree that's made on the basis of subsequent decisions. So it really is like a true back and forth, like you can map out like a chess game. Uh, it's same same deal here with, with partners or, or competitors in the international sphere. They make moves and responses to other moves, and that actually adjusts the outcome of what's possible. Okay, so to unpack all of that, I think that by adding a branch, and you, you say this is like a never-ending situation, which is... It's a really fascinating thing because I think we're conditioned when we're taught things. Alexander the Great did this, and then he conquered it. Well, what does that mean? Like, he conquered it, he took it over, and then obviously he left. So who's in charge when he leaves? Like, well, somebody's got to do something. We talk about this with the war in Afghanistan, where, like, yeah, unseated some people. Like, now there has to be someone setting up the pieces, which means that, like, okay, now that you've won the fight, what happens now? It is always the most important part of the war is the end game, figuring out what the hell is, who's in charge of what, who, now that someone's been destabilized. And because of that, you don't think like, okay, so now that we've defeated the enemy, the game is over. Well, it's not really true. The game is just different. And because of, of, of that kind of thing, it's not, your allyships are not about winning the war per se. It's about like, who are we in bed with forever? Yeah, and, and, and there, there are a lot of different outcomes that you can achieve by choosing to, engage in international cooperation, even beyond just like trying to avoid warfare. Like there, there are a lot of reasons that countries try to partner with one another. And so the question that we're really asking is like, how do we continue to have a stable, secure, peaceful, and like, um, I guess, abundant relationship among international states on the basis of cooperation after the war ends or after the security dilemma uh, erupts into armed conflict? And so the question uh, I think is best answered by understanding that decisions are made in response to one another. It's like, you know, it's not like uh, if the U.S. were to try to deploy or, like, start testing nuclear weapons, then Russia would see that and mm -hmm. they would presumably do something in response, even if they don't respond at all, which is, like, a, a separate decision that they could make on the tree. The option to not respond is still a response. Right, and that uh, we got into that last week with the Glomar response about how you act in the media kind of incentivize it's communicating with everybody the way that you act in the media. Like you're telling them what you know, is that a lie? Is that the complete truth? It's like a bluff in poker. Essentially. We've been doing this testing exercise shit forever. I'm sure that as long as there has been intelligence gathering and the ability to message across time and space, what I mean is like tell someone something quickly, like even via phone, we've been yes. doing this testing thing, like nuclear weapons. We've been in a violent nuclear war for like 70 years because the testing counts 
it absolutely counts. That's the same thing as deploying a nuclear weapon. If you're showing someone how big your gun is, that's a, that's a move on a chessboard. It may be a little pawn move, but it's a move. And because of that, like we are in this in in this place where deciding not to respond is does that mean they're not worried about us? Everything, everything matters all the time. The weird thing to me is like, what if it doesn't mean anything? What if when when someone's trying to convince you, like, no, I'm not, I'm really not mad. I'm not mad. And you're like, yeah, but you seem mad. You but seem I'm mad. not mad, but I'm really not mad. Well, how do you believe them? How, what if what if somebody obviously testing a nuclear war head or something would not be great? But if it was some little military exercise, exercise, what if the United States government at any point in time, I'm not talking about President Trump, Biden, Bush, or Obama, any president, random president, pick one, is just like, I actually don't give a shit about China doing this. They're not actually going to do anything. I really care way more about these other five things today. The military's on it. We're not going to even respond to this. Is China going to be like, oh, they don't respect us. Yeah, so like, like that's that's the question. There's there's also like the mentality like so it's well do they not respect us like or or do they like somehow uh, do they have like some other nefarious scheme like up their sleeve? Uh, it could also be a matter of like I'm gonna like do the international equivalent of I'm not touching you where you get like really really close and see how close you. <laughs> that can get. seems like, to be I'm, the most I'm not touching you. Thing, I'm not yeah. touching. Yeah, so the the term that national security experts use that to describe that phenomenon is uh, salami slicing. Where it's like if if you have an expansionist power, so okay, so so people people don't realize like Japan in like the 1930s and 40s, like pre-war Japan was just straight up like our foreign policies, just like we're colonizing, like we're yeah. straight up taking Asia, we're taking China, we're taking you know, as much they as they have hands a on. lot in common with the British Empire, yeah, a lot over time, yeah. yeah, and so rather than trying to go in like huge chunks, what modern imperialists do now that it's much more difficult in the international architecture i guess is a little bit more stable is they do salami slices of a little bit of territory at a time mm -hmm. sometimes i mean that literally so like there are examples of like russian security forces on the border with georgia which they invaded in 2008 for this exact reason uh, they'll just like literally in the middle of the night pick up like the barrier posts that says like here's where the border is and they'll just like move them 100 yards <laughs> and they'll just like physically change the border by doing that and so it it's really becomes a matter of like what can i get away with before I get really punished for this. And it, what it usually comes down to is that the, the salami slices are so thin when an imperialist power takes control that they don't raise the like full might in response to an unjust action. Crimea in 2014 is the perfect example of that. Yeah. Vladimir Putin, on the tales of yet another Olympics, decided to just Where they cheated. By the way, the Winter Olympics, we could have won that if we wanted. Yeah, what the heck? What are we doing out here? But so... <laughs> On the tails of that, Putin engaged in another offensive action to annex sovereign territory. He took the territory of Crimea, used some bullshit justification for it. Yeah. But what he did was actually pretty smart because you know, people weren't paying attention to the justification. The thing that mattered was that the action of taking just Crimea, just the Crimean Peninsula, and not the entirety of Ukraine, that was small enough, that was a small enough salami slice, that it's significant, but it doesn't raise... The heckles of the United States enough to like engage in military action to stop the invasion. Right. If it would be like so, this this invasion of Ukraine was was botched. It was terrible, but it also has not seen uh, nuclear weapons use. So the yeah. question is, how much military force, how much of this like bullshit special operations rhetoric and action can Vladimir Putin take on Ukraine before he actually starts a no kidding global catastrophe? Yeah. So that that's that's like the strategy is like they'll just like get a little bit like a little thin slice at a time 
and uh, eventually they have the entire salami and nobody realizes it. it's like the frog in boiling water like yeah you well look I mean, around the other way like anybody who's raised kids uh, give an inch take a mile like of course i'm going to do this of course i'm yep. going to do this until you get yep. severely punished the question is that the punishment at that point become the story and do you want to deal with the punishment because in this case you're not grounding your kid you're like sending hundreds of thousands of people to their certain death uh well at least yeah, tens of thousands exactly. of them to their certain death so warfare is always kind of interesting to me in that the more i learn about it and i i listen to lectures and I read books since we started doing this show, the more I learn about it, the more I realize the most violent and deadly wars are not really fought in, in battle arenas. The way to win them is with resources. No matter what you do, people need oxygen, water, and food. And one of, we were just talking about like when you have to be in bed with other countries and parties. Ukraine is super de-duper important, I would say, for the existence of like hundreds of millions of people because... Yep. That's where food comes from. They have all of the food. They grow it. It's theirs. So I've been listening to this guy. He was on Joe Rogan. He's been making the rounds, doing lectures, and he's just a would probably be really great professor, I would say. I don't know how respected he is in terms of people who take things seriously, but he was point, kind of pointing out that um, – I'll give him a mention. I don't know. He's on TikTok. And you'll know who he is because he's everywhere. But he was kind of pointing out that the way to make Russia back off of your Ukraine is you can't win the war. Like, you can't just bully them. You're going to have to outlast them. The way to win the war is to starve them um, and just yeah. kind of cut off their food supply. And that's he, where we're he's at. Saying, he's saying Russia starves Ukraine? No. U Ukraine starves, like, we starve Russia. Yes. So, he, because U Ukraine has all of the fucking food. They can, they if they can corral it because they took Crimea which this guy was su suggesting theoretically was not a great move because of this grain thing then Ukraine can just like burn grain which would kill a lot of other wow. people but it would also like Russians and not just the military like Russians would die they depend so heavily on you it is the breadbasket of Europe it's it's the 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 Hungarian steppe the plain that that southwestern part of the old Soviet Union is where all the food is so they like and that this is the kind of thing wow that is a, a strategy beyond meeting them in open battle where if you're the United States and our CIA has come up with many brilliant plans and a lot of stupid ones like the Bay of Pigs, you have a list of options on your desk that are this, not that are beyond war or no war, these kind of covert wars. I, another great example of this, if, if I continue rambling, is the Civil War. Um, Abe Lincoln made one of the dumbest decisions in military history, in my opinion. I don't know complete military history of the world, but this was incredibly really? stupid. Due to political pressure in the Civil War, he started marching on the South. Well, the South didn't have a Navy. The problem with the original strategy was that it would take like four years to implement, but the original strategy was we're just going to send a bunch of ships from Delaware and D.C. and New York and Pennsylvania, and we're going to just annex them. We're going to go up the Mississippi River. They'll starve to death, and then they'll quit. Like, so they yep. were going to do like a blockade. Yep, and they're like, they and the, the, the Confederate Army, they did not have a Navy. There were no options like they were they would wow. have all quit immediately the problem was due to political pressure the north's like what are we doing we're losing because the, the robert e lee is kind of poking them and like well let's march on them so abe lincoln caved and marched on them and as a result of that like the bloodiest grossest thing ever happened and it would could have been a, essentially a borderline non-comp non-violent conflict they would have won it would have been quick wow well, it would take uh, so, a long time to get around but they would have had so, to do so this this gets us into a discussion of like, okay, could we morally make this decision? So, yeah. I, so I, th I think it's a compelling point. Like, like you, you try to have a war of attrition if you have a lot more people and a lot more resources and you can mm -hmm. control those resources. Like, okay, yeah, absolutely. But one of the problems I think that you run into is that morally speaking, 
it's really hard to justify that when Ukraine is so important to so many other people other mm-hmm. than your adversary. So right. like, it, it, as, as usual, as is almost always the case in like huge conflicts, the people who are hurt the most are the people who already have the fewest protections. The people who are the most vulnerable stand to lose the most, especially when you engage in like a war of attrition. And like, set, if you were to like set the grain fields on fire, the people who would die would also be the Ukrainian farmers who depend on the income. Right. It would also be the Ukrainians who depend on having like local food production because it's hard to ship in a fucking war zone. And the people who would lose would also be like poor people in other parts of the world who depend on the global system of economic trade to like get grain from Ukraine. So it, it's, it's kind of like uh, what you say, like the, the strategy might be to starve out Russia by setting all of Ukraine's like food stores on fire and starving them out. That's bold. I don't know if if Russia, yeah, this is Russia's relationship with China yeah. might like you know, might protect them in that way. But also, it sounded like uh, Saddam setting the oil fields on fire. Mm-hmm. He's like, well, if I can't have this, then nobody can. Yeah. And the people who are hurt the most are the people who have to deal with the direct effects of having oil fields blazing right next to like where they live, like raining yeah. the soot and ash and stuff. And it's it, it, the, the 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 poor in the world always suffer the most because of war, even if that war has nothing to do with them, their political situation, not even in their region. Those people who are the ones who are hurt the most uh, by the the failure to cooperate internationally. Yeah, and the, and we talked about this in our old episode, and it, it stands, it's still true today. By invading someone so close to you, you put yourself in a weird kind of standoff with all of that country's like pseudo allies and like NATO is like a, it, NATO is acting like a country, but it's not a country. It's just a group of bros who signed a document. It doesn't, anybody could break NATO at any time. What are they, what are we going to do? Like nothing. If Germany wanted to really like get pissed off and do something like no one, nothing like people would get mad, but people got mad at Russia, but not that mad. They just yelled at them on the UN floor. Nothing happened. Well, I take, I take a different view of, especially like organizations like NATO that are treaty bound. And that's exactly what Harrison Wagner, who's like the subject of Paul Post's Twitter thread, that's exactly what Wagner said was like actually justifies the strength of international cooperation. He called the, the term he used is conditional cooperation. So if you think back to like, instead of a prisoner's dilemma, this is like a, a, a call and response kind of decision tree where a party makes a decision and then another party makes a decision in response to that first one and then the decisions go back and forth. So as we said, that's not the same as just playing the same game over and over again. Instead, the states still play the game like one single time, but they now have an opportunity to make cooperation conditional on future events. So I'm going to read directly from from Wagner's, uh, Wagner's text about this. He says, stated more positively... In any situation in which players choose one after the other, with full knowledge of each other's choices, conditional cooperation will actually be the optimal strategy as long as no one can count on having the last choice. Yeah. So stated differently, so Paul Post is, is kind of explaining this. He says, iterated games hold that cooperation occurs because I worry what's going to happen with the next arms control treaty. Tree, uh, security organization, what have you. So if Germany were to just go AWOL from NATO and abandon their obligations as this like key part of Europe and say, like, no, we don't want to participate in this anymore, then all of a sudden Germany is on the outs when it comes to future cooperation, mm-hmm. future it, you know, trade. And, and, and in a world where, in a world that's increasingly characterized by fast, instant interrelationship where you can transcend time and space with electronic transactions and communications and whatever else, being left out, out in the cold like that, being isolated 
is so dangerous and so costly that your incentive is always to cooperate. And it's exactly like Wagner says, when you can make moves in response at the end of the game, you're much better off making cooperation conditional as long as you don't know what the last move is. And Nick, I think the probably the best example of that in terms of like true international cooperation that's not among people who are already friends would be the New START Treaty. That's the New Strategic yeah, Arms Reduction this. Treaty. Yep. Yeah, so there's a long history of nuclear arms control. We won't go through the entire thing because, frankly, unless you're into that sort of thing, get a little boring. Uh, <laughs> but the point is that one of the ways that we're able to increase the security and stability in, the world, in a world in which nuclear weapons abound is to make agreements with other nuclear powers that we will place a cap on the maximum number of nuclear weapons we can have so that's called arms control yeah and in the process of arms control there are a couple of requirements number one you have to have like some some notion of like what a mutual desirable end state looks like in this case it's better for both russia and the u.s not to be at war it's better for us not to engage in nuclear war and it's better for us not to have an arms race because that's really really costly and it's really dangerous it increases the likelihood of, of miscalculation or you know the deliberate use of nuclear weapons so the New START Treaty is the latest iteration of like the biggest, like high-level, no kidding, arms control agreement between the world's two largest nuclear powers. Uh, I'm going to read just a little bit from uh, from the uh, Arms Control Association, just like uh, kind of a fact sheet. So, uh, New START continues the bipartisan process of verifiably reducing U.S. and Russian strategic nuclear arsenals, and this process was begun in the Reagan administration. Uh, it was continued in the George H.W. Bush administration. So New START is the first verifiable U.S.-Russian nuclear arms control treaty to take effect since the original START treaty, which was in 1994. Uh, it was a, a really remarkable achievement by the Obama administration. So New, New START's main treaty text has uh, 16 articles. It's got all kinds of definitions and technical nonsense. But the real main big takeaway is that New START limits... Uh, capped deployed strategic nuclear warheads and bombs at 1,550 apiece. So just okay. for some, con that, that sounds like a lot of nuclear weapons. But for context, at the height of the Cold War, Russia's arsenal and the U.S. arsenals were like 30,000 nuclear weapons apiece. Just huge, huge numbers. Crazy. So, right. So as part of this arms control negotiation process that's been going on for decades, we've arrived at a state now where at any given time, if we were to like call up the president and say, Hey, POTUS, how many nuclear weapons do you have? Well, the U S publishes that information. We say like, we have 1550 deployed nuclear weapons that here's where they are. Here's what's what delivery platforms they're included on. And as part of the treaty, this is the other main requirement of the treaty. We have to have a verification process. So we let the Russians come over into U S facilities and say like under the provisions of the treaty, you can look at all this stuff. You can verify that we're being honest with what we say our deployments are. You can see all of the weapons. You can see the facilities. You can take measurements with like the pre prescribed technical devices and we can do the same. The problem we have right now mm -hmm. is that Russia recently, as, as recently as like last week decided they don't want to participate in new start anymore. It came up with some bullshit uh, accusation that the U.S. is not abiding by New START. We are. And they said that we're going to suspend participation in the treaty, which means no more U.S. inspectors on site, no more like regular recurring uh, meetings of, uh, of people who like do the verification process, uh, no more exchanges of information. And the loss of that cooperation, I think, shows that Russia is playing a, a losing game. They're yeah. not 
they're they're not operating under the best incentive according to what Wagner said where they're saying like all right we're we're no longer interested in this and so cooperation for them uh is is not actually going to result in long-term benefits because they're just choosing not to play and to me that shows that Vladimir Putin is getting desperate yeah it shows that Russia is myopic and short-sighted and uh the the people who are going to pay for it are not Putin and his gang they're people who like you and me live in a world where we could be annihilated by nuclear weapons if things go bad yeah and that that was what this professor Joe Rogan guy was saying was that Russia does not, they don't historically give up until they've lost somewhere between half a million to three quarters of a million people uh, or until the government is overthrown and like, well, Putin is, has, is running a tight ship, nothing else. And, um, they're willing to send their people into harm's way. So this, this kind of reminds me, this new star treaty reminds me of you and I play a lot of chess and, Online, if you're playing in a quick game or whatever, say you make a move that is theoretically unlikely that an opponent can come back from, but it's not crazy. Like, someone, you take an opponent's bishop, and so now you have a bishop, they get nothing in return for it. It's like, okay, I'm probably going to win if I play tight, but not necessarily. It's like, yeah, you could screw it up. Maybe you're not paying attention. If you take your opponent's queen or, like, their bishop and their rook and their their knight, you're like, this is fucking done now. It's just like, it's, but they still play, and they're still throwing shit at the wall, and you're like, this is stupid now. You're just, ma- you're just making me mad. The risk, of course, is that if you engage with the dipshittery, you could end up losing a game like that. However, if you're patient and just chill, you're going to end up winning the chess game. In this instance, it seems like Russia is just throwing a lot of pieces into the fray. Like, well, what if we did this? Like, well, nothing will be different. It's just yes. super annoying. And it shows that you're kind of a dick. The difference is that in this metaphor... Instead of just being across the chessboard for you, they're across the chessboard from you, and they have a gun and you don't. So, like, yes, you it, could win the chess game, but they might murder you. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think that's a really good metaphor. And, you know, luckily we ha- we have a, the nuclear gun as well. But yeah. you know, the real problem with this is that Putin just keeps sending young Russian men into the meat grinder, and yeah. he's forcing Ukrainian young men into the meat grinder. He's forcing Ukrainian women and children to like face bombardment. There, there are cities, whole cities have been leveled by. Yeah. by Russia's war. And the, the the thing that's crazy to me is like Putin is down to his last few pieces, but the pieces are really dangerous. Yeah. And it, it it shows the short-sightedness because like they're choosing not to continue in this conditional cooperation which Wagner proved is like the countries are incentivized to do under this like mm-hmm. turn 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 style game. And it, it I think it's reflected in like the, did you read the reporting about how the Russians thought they were going to be like, they told people to like pack your dress uniforms so we can have like a victory celebration in downtown Kiev. There was that, um, the times I read the times article. Yeah. They, yeah. they said like Russia thought this was going to be less than a week. They thought it'd be a few days. They would just like blitz Kiev and they would throw the, uh, the alleged Nazis out and they would liberate Ukraine and all this bullshit. They were not counting on losing the war, uh, on a lot of fronts. They were not counting on fighting a protracted war. Russia's military is not built for, an invasionary force. It's built to try to secure the motherland from, you know, from the threat of foreign invasion or yeah. from, you know, the threat of annexation from uh, like NATO powers or whatever else. And so as a result of that, they are desperate, but they're really well stocked with just a lot of lives that Vladimir Putin has the luxury of not giving a shit about. And it's really, I think probably one of the greatest tragedies of our time. The, the COVID-19 pandemic is certainly up there, and it's lovely that they're happening at the same time. Uh, but uh, th- this really is uh, as as bad as I've, I've ever seen 
the international security environment and the yeah. fact that the fact that nuclear weapons are now tied up in this with you know the lack of participation in the new start treaty i think it could potentially trigger an arms race because the cooperation threat is cut even though the incentives remain uh, and until that vladimir putin is out of power or uh, something drastically changes in russia um I think it's just going to continue to get worse. Well, it's really interesting for Putin, too, but by sending these young men into battle, they are not a threat to him, which is yeah. also like a really interesting part That's of true. This. Like they can't turn out, they, they, they can't have a revolution because he's just sending them to Ukraine. Um, but yes, I, I, I saw security experts on TikTok and Twitter in the early days being like, I cannot believe that Ukraine is holding up. This is fucking crazy. And then within a couple of months, they were like, they held off the initial thing. Russia. They don't have supply chains. People are quitting. Like, this is insane what's happening. They're just yeah. going into this, and the Ukrainians are like, it really is. I'm kind of fascinated by the history of Ukraine. It turns out, historically speaking, all the cool shit about Russia was just Ukrainian. I did not know that. It was just like the Soviet <laughs> Union. Like, they're all like Amazing. all the baddest people. They're, they're all, it's like, oh, that's a Russia. Like, no, nah, that's Ukrainian. I, I, I found historically what is now Ukraine and what is now Poland, those people in, in the Western world, or I guess Eastern Europe, have been shit on by far the most. Like, they are plebeian nobodies and f good for ukraine for finally being like you know what wipe us off the earth this is the last one we're not doing another hello to more we're not doing another holocaust we're not doing uh, stalingrad we're, like this is it if you want to win you're like from our cold dead hands essentially this is not we're not going down and as a result of that they've made the game interesting and now with every passing day germany's like we need energy and the uk is like we need money and the united states is taking tail numbers off of planes and the military is like itching for a fight still. It's, it's a bad situation. You got China, China's so fascinating because they just kind of like fuck around. Yeah. Like they have incentives, but also like every now and then they just like go hang out with Russia and like, Hey, we're still here. Yeah. I mean, they have like this, uh, this all weather friendship and there, there were even some fractures in that. Uh, Vladimir Putin uh, acknowledged the uh, legitimate concerns of, the Chinese delegation in a, a high-level meeting between the two countries years ago, which I, I think shows Russia's like failure to kind of uphold their end of the bargain. Yep. And uh, again, I think that's attributable to the myopic strategic thinking of the paranoid, emotionally stunted gangster with nuclear weapons that's at the helm in Russia. And make make no mistake about this, Player Three. If you're if you're listening to this, yeah, and if are. you have any reservations about <laughs> like why are we celebrating the or why are we supporting the war in Ukraine? Why are we yeah. sending all this money? Why are we sending goods over there? It really is sincerely about the Western world and our notion of individual rights, freedom, the, the, the right for people to, to live peacefully without the threat of war hanging over their heads versus straight up imperialism. I mean, yeah. straight up, Vladimir Putin is a gangster with nuclear weapons and he doesn't want a world in which people are free and which individual rights are respected. Uh, he thinks the West represents something different than it is. And so it, it really is, a, a, it's not, I don't know if class of civilizations is quite right, but it, it's about a guy who wants to just annex territory and be safe and secure with all the money and power in the world. Uh, and he doesn't care how many people he has to kill to get it. So yeah. supporting the war in Ukraine is no kidding. It's the moral thing to do. It's the responsible thing to do. And as a country with, I think the biggest uh, sense of responsibility for what individual rights mean and, and what protecting liberty means. We genuinely do have a obligation to help Ukraine win this war. Yeah, I think so too. And I think it's, it's really boils down. First of all, I'd like to shout out George Washington for making what I would consider like, obviously George Washington is a slave owner and a great general. Yo, shout general, out, a lot shout of out to George. He made what I consider the greatest decision in the history of geopolitics, um, which was not to hold on to the presidency of the United States. 
I don't uh, yeah, think shout out any... to John Adams for doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. Well, I thought he lost. <laughs> well, yeah, but he, he gave over peaceful transfer power. Yes. So George George did not, and because they're in the early days, and John Adams tisk tisk was it very uh, I would say euphoric and complimentary of George Washington. They were they were debating language and what to call him. They kind of wanted to go back into the status quo and kind of make him a king. And they fought, they fought about this and they made him president. It was like, what's his role going to be? And he was like, two terms is good. That having that level of power and just being like, I'm good. And then having an election because he didn't have a son. Nobody knew what to do. Like, we're going to do this system. We're going to fucking do it correctly. And then John Adams is president and Thomas Jefferson is vice president. And like, now we have succession. Other countries, and when I, when I look at where it really fails, that's where United, the, the United States, with the war and the, the Constitution, Magna Carta, like everybody's thought of things, fine. George Washington handing over the stick on his own, completely healthy and probably capable of running the military in the country, that changed the game. And that's where Russia's at right now. They, that's why they're fucking around. Like they, they don't have that, and they never really did. After the SARS died, they never did. And that is... Literally, in my opinion, the difference. Like that well, thing it, is, the it difference. is. You're, you're, you're genuinely spot on with this because Vladimir Putin was president of Russia for years. His term ran out, and then he essentially rewrote the constitution so that he could go back into power. Like he undercut the law that was supposed to have term limits, like like Western style democracies mm-hmm. where like mm-hmm. people can't serve continually. And he just rewrote mm-hmm. that, and he's been in power for decades now. Yep. Xi Jinping in China last year at the 20th Party Congress yep. gave himself an unprecedented third term. Like there. I say unprecedented because there's no precedent for this. So they are literally doing the exact opposite of what George Washington did because George Washington uh, wanted to protect the system. The system was based on protecting individual freedoms. Say what you want about the, the, the moral bullshit of like saying that while also being a slave owner. But all that aside, Vladimir Putin and Xi Jinping are genuinely doing the exact opposite. They're concentrating power in themselves. They're emphasizing security over international cooperation. They're building this myopic vision because it's based on grandeur and the desire to be some kind of like national hero and oversee the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation and restore uh-huh. the Soviet glory. And it is absolute horseshit. And the U.S. is like bound to be in competition with that. Yeah, no, and no question. And like the idea that not only was he in power, he was in power of a brand new thing. There were no nobles to answer to. There was no system. He was he was arguably in the greatest position that any leader has ever been. You had a blank fucking slate. You just won a war. You're friends with the most powerful country in the world at the time, France. This is your blank slate. There's a yep. great economy. People are obsessed with you. It's not that, because you see plenty of leaders, Pakistan notably is a, is a great example of this and basically all of Latin America. Like there are coups and stuff. They're like, yeah, actually we're done with you. Get out of here. This is exactly the opposite. The entire, yeah. everybody was obsessed with him. He had the wisdom. It's not that he didn't want it and it's not that he turned it over. It's that he didn't want it. He actively did not want to do it and he wanted it to go on. And because of that, we're in this situation having this podcast, talking shit on Putin. And they are over there doing that, which is the biggest bummer to me. I'm a huge fan of Russian literature. And I can say Russia used to be really great and could have really been something. And I can say the same. I don't know as much about China, but I know uh, there's plays and musicals and things called China Before Communism. I suspect the same of China. Like they... Um, they didn't really industrialize quickly, but both Russia and China really could have been something on the global stage, but instead they're prisoners. Yeah, they're they're prisoners to their own delusions of grandeur, I uh-huh. think. Uh-huh. And uh, it, so conditional cooperation, in theory, game theory plays itself out. But once again, biases, self-obsession, paranoia, 
the desire to be something that transcends the national historical narrative, some kind of like grandiose sense of wanting to fulfill destinies or whatever. Yep. That is absolutely going to upend conditional cooperation and game theory incentives every time. Yeah, and it's, you know, just wanting to be the impressive one. I, I mean, there's nothing that Putin could possibly do that'll make him a bigger, more long-lasting servant of Russia and, and the Rusin people and, and the Tatars than what Dostoevsky and Tolstoy did. Nothing. It's because they did it out of, you know, self-sacrifice, not of self-grandeur. Yep. That's how it goes. Well, on that high horse, uh, you and I, experts in everything, of course. That's right. <laughs> we We're going to ride off morality. into the sunset until episode 63, where we'll demonstrate our greatness again. We will be broadcasting live from a gulag somewhere inside Ukraine. <laughs> and, uh, of course, that's right. We, uh, we will be apologizing for everything we just said. I'm, I'm, uh, I'm utter utterly certain of it, Chris. Look for the new logo that's coming in the next episode, depending on when you're listening to this. That's right. And I'm, thinking, uh, I'm thinking parchment white. Not like off-white, like parchment white. white. Not quite white, like uh, yeah, like constitution white. Constitution eggshell. Egg mm, you ruined it. Everything cool I just said, you wrecked it. Yeah. You're welcome. Thank you.